So yeah, to have finally and not an answer to what is wrong with me, but just what makes me unique, obviously was, you know, very, very much a relief. to the eighth episode of Autism with a Pinch of Salt. This is my first episode where I can say I am a fully-fledged speech and language therapist, which is very exciting. In this episode, I have a chat with Scott Nielsen, an autistic trainer and blogger. We chat about his experience going through diagnosis in his teens, his working life, and his most recent experience at an autistic retreat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Well, thank you so much for coming on today to have a chat with me. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So uh, I'm Scott. Um, I'm autistic myself, uh, currently 25 years old. I've uh, been doing some work over the past few years in various autism charities, uh, really trying to support other autistic people. Uh, most recently, I've been part of a new role as the one of the first sort of autistic-led trainers in Lanarkshire. Uh, it only took like a million years, but we got there. So um, yeah, that's a bit about some of the work I do at the moment in terms of where my role is. And uh, also, this is my very first podcast I've done, so it's quite exciting to be on here. So, so thanks for having me here. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Scott, could you walk us through your journey to, to diagnosis so what led to your diagnosis and and yeah how that happened mm-hmm, of course so the main memory i have of it, how it began was i was in this sort of gym club where my my mom and sister were sort of observing me from like the nearby cafe and i had always had this sort of struggle with like motor skills coordination those sort of movements i wasn't necessarily picking up and how to use the gym equipment as quick as the other children in that area so that led to me like getting these sort of assessments with um there might have been some sort of slts or like other kinds of therapists where they did some sort of movement exercises like got me to draw things and tell them what certain shapes looked like and that sort of led over a course that was like 2006 so over that year it led to me being recognized as having dyspraxia so that was the first step was been recognized as like being dyspraxic and uh had a lot of um sort of challenges as well when it came to handwriting using a pen so the main support i was getting at school as i approached high school was around like learning how to use a pen pencil and like improve my handwriting skills and then the next thing I remember was I had some assessment around my third year of high school and then there was this big like two-year wait as I was being referred by the education psychologist and I, I, it's a bit fresh in my mind because I remember reading the whole like diagnostic paper I got so it was like the education psychologist at my school who referred me on but I think it did take a while because 
I was maybe think of even describe me in the writing as doing okay in like school and uh, having maybe that presentation I've been more quiet and probably compliant to be honest with like teachers and authority figures so I really got my diagnosis now coming up nine years yeah nine years ago this month actually so uh, that was with a sort of one-stop shop with Scottish autism that was in Motherwell at the time uh, which is not available anymore and it was just through that the sort of standard like interview my parents were speaking to one facilitator I was speaking to another person and then over that morning they sort of put the pieces together I guess and then you're just kind of told that you're autistic <laughs> and then um, I remember that that is the overall the rough journey of how I got to that point and I'd never uh, heard of it before uh, the label I got was at the time was uh, the Asperger syndrome which personally I don't uh, go by that anymore I just prefer autistic for uh, lots of reasons we probably don't have time to get into <laughs> with this right. podcast uh, so I just recognize myself as being autistic now and it was a quite a liberating experience you know there was that sense of relief because well I would say that I was quite happy overall in childhood like I had good friends uh, as a child in my sort of street uh, where I lived although the main issues was always with school like that was where my main source of anxiety was uh, I think I would go into like situational mutism a lot when I was in school uh, a lot of sort of different sensory challenges you know and I think even when you're young and you don't know you're autistic you might not know what's different about you but you can still tell sort of unconsciously that you are different so I was still picking up in that between myself and you know these 30 other classmates that obviously I was standing out and uh, you know you, there's a lot of rejection that comes with that that we often experience uh, in school especially I think so yeah it was really important for me to get that diagnosis obviously it would have been good to have known that earlier in my life but you know the fact that I did get it uh, you know was really validating um, although uh, validating but not quite satisfying I would say because I was just kind of given a bunch of leaflets with very little follow-up there was no not really any support services not really any groups they signpost you to and I think my official sort of a term was uh, mild asperger so there's a bit of that as we call it the imposter syndrome that you had actually mentioned before the recording how when you're just given that little mild label you sort of think well maybe I'm not really autistic and I think through 16 to my early 20s I've just kind of I've assumed that well if I'm mild then obviously I'm meant to just adapt and mold myself into uh, workplaces education or whatever I'm supposed to be so uh, it was quite challenging when you're only given that sort of mild or the whole nonsense functioning labels thing so yeah that's that's maybe a long-winded answer no but, not uh, at all that's just, great in terms of just the diagnosis session um there is obviously validating getting that but uh, I know even today it's it's not really up to standards like your post-diagnosis uh journey through these like organizations so yeah yeah I think it's really interesting as well that you see although at the time so 
am I correct in thinking you were 16 when you were diagnosed? Yeah, that's right. So you were 16. You didn't really know what autism or, or Asperger's as it was then was, mm. but you still felt liberated. You still mm. felt like mm-hmm. that sense of relief that, okay, so yeah. there's, a, there's a reason um, yeah. for maybe how I've been feeling that way. And, and I think that's, that's so important. I often hear, you know, I hear about families who are saying, I, I don't want to label my child. I don't believe in labels. And it's all this, this focus on the label as such. And, and I remember listening to Dean Beadle, um, one of his um, one of the walks that he was doing during lockdown. I, I, I love listening to Dean, Dean Beadle. And he was he was like uh, talking about this labeling. And he said, you know, to me, a label is something that you stick on a leg of lamb. That, that's what <laughs> yeah, a label yeah, is yeah, for, right. for, for, for autism and, and neurodiversity. This is an identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not a label. And, and and I often think about that as, you know, for, for, you know, parents that are maybe going through the process with their child or as a, an a, adults that are maybe wondering, okay, is there, you know, is there a neurodivergence in myself? Then mm-hmm. it's an identity. It's not, it's not a label. Right. And just to add to that as well with the labeling, uh, a big reason for me that diagnosis was quite liberating was I was internalizing a lot of these really negative damaging messages like through all of school basically like peers in my class like direct quotes to me where things like what is wrong with you or why are you so weird uh, or why why are you this why are you that it's that constant uh, invalidation I think a lot of us do experience what we call invalidation trauma so yeah to have finally an not an answer to what is wrong with me, but just what makes me unique, obviously was, you know, very much, very much a relief. So yeah, just that was, that's a big thing. Just the whole, as we call it, the internalized ableism we sort of develop where we might be very harsh on ourselves, judge ourselves. Like, why are we not, basically, why are we not living up to the standards of everyone else in our society? And we can become very self-critical uh, to be honest, even now as an adult, like I, I would say I'm just starting to in workplaces ask for the adjustments I might need, and it can take a lot for me to build up to that and ask. Even people I trust and I know very much would value, you know, my needs, what what as I'm asking for. But there's that sort of, you know, all that sort of messages we've absorbed over the years where it's like, oh, I'm not meant to ask for this and also if I do ask for this are colleagues going to judge me as being like incapable or lazy so there's a lot of um yeah really it's really um hard stuff experiencing that even you know as you come out of that and you know or on your own journey as an adult yep that's really that's really interesting and and really so many important points there especially about what yourself and, and what other neurodivergent people might be internalizing and being worried you know say to an employer actually can I have a flexible start time and a flexible finishing time for example or can I get a wobble cushion for my seat and yeah. you know like we yeah. uh-huh. things like that that might make make the difference and and it just it it shouldn't be as hard as it is to be able to ask for these things, but as a res- as as a result of years of of feeling mm-hmm. invalidated and years of 
that yeah. internalized ableism building up and building up it does have a long-term mm -hmm. effect yeah i think um, the first sort of main adjustment i did was just january this year when it was our first sort of big team meeting back and i saw on the agenda we received i was the last person to speak of like the 10 person team and i remember just going into this sort of state of anxiety and with a, i guess sort of um like we can kind of go into rumination quite easily i would say so for me in those couple of days all i was thinking about was oh no i need to be the last person to speak and i had quite a lengthy update of things i wanted to say so it the week or so after that, I did go to like one of the main managers and of course they were totally great about it and totally understood that yes, going last and like a meeting like that is quite a lot to deal with. So uh, that is just a simple adjustment where I've asked basically to speak earlier in a team meeting. So I'm not just focusing purely on what I'm going to say and building up that anxiety over like two hours. So. I've really just started this sort of process of, you know, little adjustments that are just, as we say, very simple to do. And how did you feel afterwards once it was, once you asked and once they were like, absolutely, that's that's absolutely fine? Were you, were you yeah. like relieved or? Relieved, no, very relieved. And just basically the follow-up meetings, the agenda just has changed the order. There was no singling out of Scots asked to go first it's just sort of normalized and unspoken which I think can be quite uh, useful because you're not putting that sort of pressure in someone who's you know who needs a bit of an adjustment in that area yep so. that's great in the workplace now you, you'd mentioned earlier on that sometimes just due to that internalized ableism and mm -hmm. that you've maybe experienced before going forward and, and asking for the, the adjustments that you might need can sometimes cause that rumination and, and to worry about your colleagues feeling um, that you're maybe incapable, which you're absolutely, you're, mm -hmm. you're not, you're very, very capable. Mm -hmm. Have you got any tools that you use to overcome them or is, is that something that you're still working on? Mm -hmm. I think it, um, I'd say it gets better as the years go on. It's a lot of sort of practicing self-compassion, I would say, you know, just that sort of kindness to yourself. And the more, um, the openness, actually, that's another thing, the vulnerability, like we had this big sort of charity, like big celebration event day uh, with like, you know, probably 200, 300 families coming, the whole staff team volunteers were there and things just got really chaotic, like very quickly into that day. And again, this is no one's none of the staff's fault at all. These things just happen, but I did sort of go into a shutdown quite early on as all the people were coming through the doors and all the families. And even now I still have a bit of like a brain fog. Like I don't actually remember what happened half of that event. And I remember it was the next week or so where I spoke to one of uh, the sort of main group staff that I was working with at the time and just let them aware of that because I felt like it was just good to be honest when I am overwhelmed or overstimulated rather than masking or suppressing that and also it helps me to avoid that in the future and you know it might help other staff other young people as well so we had a little 
conversation about that just quite naturally. And again, just there was that validation, that understanding of, you know, that that makes complete sense. And there was no, you know, no judgment on me or anything like that. So yeah, I would say that vulnerability of just been open about these things is a good way of like, I guess, overcoming the sort of internalized ableism and those negative voices. Yeah. yeah. And do you find as the years have kind of went on, I'm kind of trying, I'm looking back maybe 10 years now. And so I've been involved in different autism services for 10 years, which makes me feel quite old. But so for, for 10 years, and I think even to where we were 10 years ago, to where we are now, things are definitely better. Mm-hmm. Things are moving forward. Probably not at the rate that we would all have like all like it to go. But do you feel with the progression and people's ideas of, of neurodiversity and neurodivergence, do, do you think that that makes it a bit easier as well with that there is a little bit more awareness out there now? Do you think that makes it a bit easier? I think so, definitely. Yeah, because we even work with non-autistic colleagues, uh, those that maybe would be more classed as neurotypicals. And a lot of them are very much willing to like seek to understand they're willing to put in these adjustments and understand like neurodiversity as a whole overall. So I think, yeah, again, people like I work with do seem to be more open to it, which is really nice. Of course, you get some who are still very rigid in their own ways and quite fixated in what they believe. So there's that sort of struggle challenges with that but I do I do see a lot more of people that if it's in talks I do or training that they really uh, they're there for a reason because they want to know how to support autistic uh, other neurodivergent people better in their life so mm-hmm. absolutely I think knowing more of that has been really beneficial. Brilliant. Do you know something you just said there and you mentioned it before as well before we're recording them being the rigid ones? Uh-huh. The irony oh in that, you know, like people that are maybe quite stuck in their ways or they've been in a job for 10, 20 years and no, but that's how we do it. And that's how we've always done it. Yeah. And yeah. and then it's the statistics that are called <laughs> the original. Like, yeah. there's, there's a wee bit of irony was, in that. No, I think... Um... Like I've been on, <laughs> I've read a lot of books and been on courses that went over the whole autism history stuff. And I mean, we're really still untangling, even though things are better, they're still untangling from the 100 years ago where it was purely on uh, white cisgender boys. And that's really the only thing clinicians, assessors still look for. And, and as I said earlier before the recording, the autistic experience people think of as a distressed hit child, like they're looking for the meltdowns, shutdowns, mental breakdowns. Uh, that's all they're really looking for. But, you know, we both know that the autistic experience is so much more than that. It's a lot more richer and vibrant and there's a lot of joyful aspects to being autistic awesome. and that are just that are just still not recognised. Like I, I talk about specific experiences or traits and audience members have never in their lives heard of that before. There, so it's, there's a lot of catching up to do still, I believe, but I think the more you get people out there doing these talks and 
doing sort of workshops like exercises to really humanize, normalize these things, you will have a much more uh, accepting, inclusive society. Yep, yep. So, yeah. I tend to, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this over the past couple of weeks and I often see the thing about autism assessment is it's based on somebody's view on an external behavior that is driven by an internal process. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, and not everybody's external behaviors are replicating that internal process. That can make it quite tricky. And that absolutely. can make it, I suppose that makes it tricky for clinicians as well, because they are looking for those external behaviors. But it's the internal process that we should really be looking at. Okay, so the why or what what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on when you're in this situation? Not even when you're acting this way or, or doing this certain behavior, but when you are in this situation, what's going on internally? What are you feeling? Exactly. And I'm hoping that, you know, going forward in time, there'll be a wee bit more of that, that looking into the end. What's happening mm-hmm. internally rather yeah. than the focus on the external behaviour? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking lots about that recently. Right, this is a this is maybe a tangent I'm doing. I don't know if this will right. work podcast, right? But so I'm right now. I'm showing this little uh, plushy octopus, which is like a sort of reversible one. So you've got like the sort of sad face, then the happy face. So reason I'm bringing this up is I was in a sort of online autistic space recently. And we know that alexithymia is quite common, which is like struggling to identify your own emotions. Uh, Personally, I don't think I have alexithymia, but a big thing that is a challenge for me as well is the sort of, how are you questions? Like, how are you feeling? Like, that's a big uh, thing to ask an autistic person. So I was in this space and basically what they did was they just sort of imagined the question a way of like, what what octopus are you at the moment? Are you a happy octopus? Are you angry, frustrated? Uh, are you a drained octopus? Like just giving these other words uh, to sort of like explain your emotional experience at that point. And I found like little things like that, you know, rather than the, you know, typical standard, how are you question, like just, you know, attaching like maybe like if it is an octopus or, could be a bear, whatever it may be, is actually quite uh, useful for us. And yeah, it makes us process our emotions a bit better, I would say. Absolutely. And just when you were showing me that octopus theory, it actually made me think, so you've got the happy octopus sometimes on the outside. Yeah. Inside that octopus, there's a sad face. Yes, that's right. And sometimes people might be smiling. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Internally, you know, there may be more. Or actually, on the outside, if somebody, for example, is hyper-focusing on something Uh and and they're lost in this magical daydream, and they might look like they're a bit cross or a bit sad, but Uh internally they are absolutely full of joy because they are... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we call that the resting autistic face, quite neutral. On expressions, but there's that deep joy internally, and people can't really see that, obviously. Yep, and that's um, again, I'm just going back to that whole you know, we're basing a lot on external behaviors, 
from an internal process Absolutely. and that, just when you showed me that octopus I was like oh that's a great sort of visual representation of that you know yeah what's going on in the outside isn't always representative of what's going on oh, in the inside no no and similar with the body language isn't it like it's not that neurodivergent people or body language might not follow this sort of neuronormative standards like obviously you've got your eye contact thing or maybe the way um, I think a common one for me is I might like just sort of fold in my arms and or even like if it's leaning my face to like my hand on a table I do that almost out of comfort but yeah. usually those things are seen as someone who's disinterested or not listening that kind of thing but that's not really the case for us that actually helps us maybe to listen better uh, yeah absolutely yeah that's a really that's a really really good point Scott, would you mind telling us a little bit about your job? Because this, I think what you do is brilliant and I wish there was more of it over all the local authorities. Yeah, would you mind sharing a bit about what you do? Of course, yeah. So like the past few years, you know, I've been around various different uh, autism charities and mainly like sort of support worker roles, a couple of sort of, I guess, ASN schools, they still call it, like particularly with autistic children there. And now over the sort of COVID pandemic, I've been working with my local autism charity again, and I still do at times a various bits of maybe like family support work, working with the young people in the groups. And the past year now, my main role has been as uh, one of the autistic trainers at our charity. So I work alongside two other autistic people who are fantastic. And we like compiled together this uh, big sort of massive, um, sort of, I guess main, we call it the sort of main autism and neurodiversity training program. So. It's nearly seven hours in total, and that one sort of goes out to the big, big ones like your education, social workers, uh, families as well. And there's a couple of other versions we're going to try work on, like shorter two-hour information sessions, some ones for uh, kids, like a school assembly potentially. So, yeah, really that's been a big focus of mine the past 10 months now. And uh, it's quite uh, quite a journey with that, you know, because uh, even going back a year ago, I wouldn't have thought I would be up doing even talks on a laptop, like a webinar or like standing in public, like public speaking. Uh, but I'm quite grateful just that the people I work with, uh, my sort of managers, obviously saw, saw something in me that made them want to uh, put me forward for this funding again, because they were really passionate about having autistic people lead on training like actually deliver training and within our area of Lanarkshire there's literally no other autistic people doing that which I do think is quite a shame it has taken all that time but it is you know grateful that we are of the first to do that and really just we started like the in-person ones back in March so we're approaching six months now and we're getting all kinds of requests in from various CLD workers, social work, a couple of schools uh, in like Lanarkshire, sort of even outside of like the Lanarkshire area. So we're really just in our sort of mojo at the moment, just kind of going out on a little tour and delivering this training. And I'm really just the main, the main sort of core one. I'm quite satisfied with at this point. 
and I feel like there's just a lot of really good golden nuggets of information in there and it's got the right information that well, I know that I would want but that we want people like non-autistic people specifically to see and something I'm also really passionate about in my work actually is the helping not just non-autistic people but autistic people themselves to have more self-understanding of who they are and with the slides training I do, I do make sure it is also inclusive of autistic people for them to be able to attend our training and watch this and feel, you know, feel something that they can be seen and heard by, something that resonates with them. And it's happened a couple of times already, like even accidentally, just even young children, uh, like there was a young girl who was definitely a masker and at one of our assemblies we did and it was after our assembly that that young girl re uh, identified a lot of the sort of autistic experience in her life so she's now been on this sort of pathway to hopefully getting a diagnosis and discovering that so there's lots of uh, little bits and pieces of nice rewards we've had uh, the past few months and I think I think there must be in at least 20, maybe more than 20 at this point I've delivered. And I've also created uh, several like little bite-sized webinars on specific topics. So I'm actually doing one at the end of September around like autistic people's interests and their passions and how these are beneficial for their well-being. Uh, there's a couple other ones I'm exploring like autistic culture and autistic empathy and even a bit about like autistic trauma specifically and what those responses are like for us so uh, through my charity i'm hoping to uh, likely deliver those online throughout the next year so it is just really rewarding and fulfilling to get to create this stuff and you know hopefully something that i hope in the future it will open more doors for other autistic people who might want to either be a public speaker or also just to be more openly autistic that's something you know the vulnerability aspect again like the more I do training like I might show more of these little quirks of myself to complete strangers just to you know humanize and stop the prejudice stop the othering of our group and I feel that more we are going out there doing that visibly just visibly being autistic we can hopefully reduce a lot of that prejudice and also again for autistic people to see that in person and like they can hopefully learn that actually it's okay for them to be different too and uh, like what they like love what they love and just be who they are essentially so that's my, uh, my overall i mean kind of go with that even outside the training as autistic people i work with is to help them sort of discover themselves and have that deep connection to their identity and their culture because frankly they're not allowed that they're not really encouraged to connect to their autistic identity so that's that kind of covers my main like dedicated interest too so i, I am one of those ones whose sort of interest led to a career as well so yeah it's it's really great it's amazing though because you obviously have a real passion for yeah. what you're doing but you, you've not only got that passion you've got that lived experience yeah. so that can bring a real unique perspective to listeners to those that are coming on your training and I think that's brilliant and 
any training that I do, I was saying to you earlier on, I'm, especially in terms of like fidgeting and stuff, I'm like, let's normalize this. Let's like normalize fidget toys. They're not babyish. They're not mm-hmm. childish. Anybody can use these and, and that's that's okay. Let's let's normalize yeah. that. Let's forcing uh, people I, to stay into other people's eyeballs. Like we, so we don't right. have to no. do that to have good no. communication. As horrified as some people might might be at that. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I saw a post on, on Facebook the other day. I, I shared it and it was one that Anne Love had shared about if you needed eye contact to communicate, then nobody would be able to communicate using the telephone. Uh-huh. Wow. Something like that. And I was like, great yeah. point, because actually the majority of, of communication nowadays via the yeah, phone or yes not not my the phone call thing uh, that's quite a barrier for me too with healthcare stuff like uh, recently over covid if it was gp or like i'm physically i'd say quite healthy overall but when it comes to you know needing a gp or even like dentist check-ins like over covid in particular i found that there's a lot of really extensive questions they ask you um just so they can like prove your eligible to come in for a face-to-face they will try and make sure right now that you don't need to come in and meet them in person so being you know the autistic being autistic too there was a lot of those sort of questions the processing of that and it did feel like over the phone I was having to fight a huge battle just to prove that oh actually I would I kind of need a check-in right now because it's been a long time and uh, I just remember that being you know quite a quite a lot of stress anxiety and it felt like they were just sort of rushing me to get out of there immediately but you do feel as though you really have to almost over prepare prepare for an appointment now and just prove that actually you are eligible and have a right to healthcare. (laughs) otherwise I would have just been left you know they would have just said actually you don't sound like you're in that severe pain so we're just going to leave you there so but yeah phone call I've seen that in like statistics that's like 80 percent of autistic people do not prefer phone calls for like healthcare access it's a massive issue right now yeah I think for phone calls as as well, like just what you're saying about it being a barrier, because if you have an idea in your head, you're phoning up for X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Then the person on the phone asks you A, B, and C. You're not <laughs> yeah. prepared. You've, you know, you've not thought about what the answer to that might be. And actually being on the phone's maybe a bit nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, phone calls can be tricky. I, I know mm-hmm. people that actually script before they write a script down and they can read it out so that they don't get overwhelmed or panic before making the phone call. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'd been speaking recently about um, ADHD diagnosis Mm -hmm. and for adults and the barriers for that as well. So even making an appointment for the Mm -hmm. GP itself, the amount of executive function that that takes, you know, to pick up the phone to make the appointment. And then you get hit with all these questionnaires. Uh, so actually oh, yeah. having to then fill out all the questionnaires. And, mm-hmm. and while I appreciate that they're necessary, you need to, you know, they have to go through a screening process. Yeah, yeah. But that in itself for ADHD uh, is, is a barrier that exists functioning. That, and, you know, they might say, have these forms returned in three weeks? Well, Actually, it might per- take that ADHD person six weeks to get the forms complete. 
um, because they're not exactly dopamine inducing or you know exciting for them whereas if somebody was just to phone them and say right let's get through this questionnaire together yeah exactly so it would maybe take somebody 10 minutes on the other end of the phone but that questionnaire would get done in 10 minutes exactly and off yeah lots of so many little things that people can make a change for that Uh makes all the difference in the world See, while on uh, healthcare, do you mind if we speak about like the mental health services too? If it yeah, was, yeah, let's. I thought let's... I'd um, go there because uh, this is a bit tied into even like after I left school and everything. And uh-huh. you're, pro- you're probably familiar with uh, autistic burnout, I take it. Yep. So basically, we know that um, that's not really uh, recognised in a lot of uh, services. So, you know, I, I did have to go to like mental health services locally first time was just after leaving school and I was a bit in a bit of that rut and really it's not been till I say this year last year I've kind of looked back after learning about autistic burnout that that there's no doubt in my mind I definitely was in a burnout post school like post high school specifically just going from you know the sort of um dealing with all those sort of social expectations of school, you've got your exam pressure and, you know, all these sort of standards, metrics that they go by. So that was a very hypersensitive environment. And then I'm coming out into a much more of a low sense of environment because I didn't really have, you know, much planned. I was just really surviving, just trying to get through the end of high school. Looking at through autistic burnout, how one of the things you can tell with that is when we're in burnout, we still enjoy a lot of our like passionate interests and that can actually help us recover from it. And I remember just going to things like um, the local community mental health nurses and, you know, just describing them what I was feeling. And obviously you get the standard, you know, how are you feeling? Which, you know, that's not really a great question to ask an autistic person. And I was given, a, you know, basically like five, ten minutes of an appointment before given a couple of leaflets and then sent out the door, really. So I knew for a while, like post high school, I was definitely experiencing like burnout and those sort of signs are not really seen. But I definitely did also reach like depression at some stage post high school, like when I was in like that burnout stage for too long and I had no motivation or even desire really to progress into like like education or getting a job I was just in complete exhaustion but yeah even when you you know you get the sort of um you know you go to your GP they might tell you you're depressed and stuff but then that's another two or three months maybe more been referred to a mental health professional and then in my experience all I got was like 10 minutes and that was it I was not called back or checked in at all and also I was only 17 at the time so that was definitely a stage where it would have been much more difficult for me especially with a stranger to disclose or share you know what 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 I was struggling with at that point in my life so yeah, mental health, healthcare, definitely both of those are uh, still massive barriers, I would say. Yep. Until you find the right, you know, therapist, which I have found over the years. So, yeah, when you get a really good one, especially who's more affirming of neurodivergent people, you're, you know, you're in the right space. But it's not always easy for us to find that, of course. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. Would you mind, Scott, just explaining to to those that will be listening a wee bit about autistic burnout and what that? Oh yeah, of course. Is, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. So basically, a common way they describe sort of autistic burnout is it's this sort of point as autistic people reach where we've we're way past our sort of threshold of what we can take or cope with. So we might reach autistic burnout from a period of like excessive masking. There's maybe been too much sensory overload, sensory underwhelm. And it could be when we're experiencing a lot of anxiety and stress. Maybe it is like things like exams at school or difficult family relationships, relationship changes. And you get all these things uh, combined together and it's all juggling. We can, over time, eventually hit that point of burnout. And our, say, more natural like uh, abilities, skills, the things we might do on a day-to-day basis, we just are not able to do those anymore. And that sort of exhaustion, we might have, again, brain fog where we our memory maybe isn't so good for those of us that maybe mask a lot in public we might lose the ability to mask we might lose the ability to speak so autistic burnout is quite a a, quite a horrific thing to go through and it can last anything from days to weeks to months and some people have heard it's even been years for them to recover from their burnout so it is obviously quite different from your non-autistic burnout like your sort of workload burnout this can be as a result of um you know a lot of stressors from being autistic like and being in environments for too long where we're not being supported enough in school especially mainstream schools that's that's definitely a cause for burnout because we see so many kids develop school trauma to the point that they're actually not able to leave their house again because they've just been so traumatized from the school and just reach complete burnout and it takes a lot a lot of work and a lot for them to process for them to just feel safe and are able to recover again before like leaving the house so that is a lot it's a big way of describing it I guess but a good way of um, distinguishing like depression from autistic burnout is how if I'm ever been in burnout I, I do remember how I would still you know spend lots of time like hyper focusing on my interests at the time and that you know was a nice little retreat for me to go to whereas if points where I've been depressed like those interests aren't going to really do anything for me so yeah depression is obviously losing that sort of motivation desire for our interests as well but if we're in burnout we know that interests like utilizing those are actually a great way to recover from being in burnout yeah. I hope that makes sense because there's a lot of professionals that are really eloquently uh, do a lot of work describing burnout. So I'm just quite new to the whole idea of it. No, that was uh, beautifully put, Scott. I really liked oh, how the, the distinguish between burnout and depression as well was, is really, really, it's key actually, isn't it? Have you got any tips for any of our autistic listeners for, who are maybe you know, still on that journey of, of self-identification, understanding themselves and, and working through this neurotypical world as a neurodivergent person, mm-hmm. how to avoid burnout? Avoid burnout. Uh, one of the things, just a tip in general, would be to, if you have like social media or anything, would be follow 
people from the artistic community. I, I, I found just my own journey, like, because I'm still learning a lot about myself too at the moment, watching uh, maybe talks or just videos, reading blogs, articles by other artistic people, that's a really validating experience. And the more you do that, I find you're going to pick up in patterns or things people say and do that you're like, oh, I do that as well. That's a very common thing that happens where we might think in our heads, um, oh, you know, oh, does anyone else do that or whatever? But then you start to like, you know, spot these little things where there's a lot of autistic people might have all different experiences, traits, but there's also a lot of similarities too. And with burnout as well, I think, Definitely knowing like your needs, like your sensory needs. Uh, I, I've st I'm still in the process of uh, developing my own like personal sensory communication profile because uh, I find like looking at those things, obviously sensory, you know, triggers is going to be a big thing that can get someone into burnout. Communication too. So if it's you know learning who you know, what sort of things, you know, do you need to avoid? What sort of, if it's verbal, written communication, what's best for you? And again, it always goes back to like that, you know, learn about yourself, having that self-understanding of your own needs, uh, I think is really, you know, important if you're going to not just avoid burnout, but also to thrive in general as autistic people. Yeah, But definitely like learning and if, if you can, uh, there's not enough unfortunately but if there is more like autistic spaces to connect to you know that's a really good way of getting that peer support and that connection to your the community that you're you know you have a right to be a part of yeah you know? the sense of camaraderie yeah that's it it's we call it the neurokin i think neurokin yes. that's a nice term it's like our, nice. our neurodivergent cousins yeah uh, yeah <laughs> i am sometimes think about burnout so think about like burnout shutdown and, and overwhelm and I think yeah. I think about like a mobile phone right for being overwhelmed and being shut and shut down and for for those that are listening are not familiar with these terms some autistic individuals experience like overwhelm and that might be presented like a, a bit of a meltdown and sometimes they have a shutdown, which is when it's all internalised and actually um, they can kind of become into themselves a wee bit. Mm -hmm. That'd be an okay way to explain that. Yeah. So I think of a, a, the battery on your phone, so your social battery can mm -hmm. start at green and then there's certain yeah. things throughout the day that bring that maybe down into the amber and then down into the red. Uh, that's another thing the past few years. Um starting to recognize my own sort of battery socially like sensually emotionally where if i'm at some kind of night out with friends or a, an event there gets to that certain point where you know my body is telling me i need to go and mm -hmm. this is actually another you know internalized ableism thing where if i'm out with people i like i enjoy being with but again there's that thing internally that's telling me you know i've reached my limit it is quite difficult to have that assertiveness just to tell people look I need to go but yeah. again the more I've done that the more you get that unspoken like just understanding people aren't like you know why don't you stay long I did used to have that at these events where people are like why are you going so early or like why can't you stay for another few hours but you know the more I do that with people like they're just very accepting of it and I find just having my own 
exit strategies for those things is really useful. So I always know like a safe way out of that place, especially if you if you're like me, if it's a new building, I always kind of go on Google Maps. I might try like scan out if they have those views where you can go inside the building through Google and have a look at what it's like. So for me, if the more I know about a place I'm going to, the better. And then also know my route out of that place where I can just leave without judgment, without, you know, having a scene or anything. So yeah. just want to add that though, because that's something that's I found quite difficult with uh, recognising the battery, because I might have, I would say more undoubtedly, I definitely would have masked and suppressed especially if I'm in a neurotypical uh, space, I've definitely suppressed my needs. Um, when I when I you know, actually I know I need to go, it's just trying to get me shifted so I actually leave when I need to. Yep. But it is, it is getting better, I would say. Um, yep. But that's a big challenge that we can have too. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think about that battery for overwhelm and for shutdown you know certain things might happen throughout the day so for example you start off at green but then somebody comes to the door that you weren't expected and that brings it down a little bit (laughs) and then you know as the day goes on it brings it down a little bit but in the background I also imagine another battery so and this would be like your motherboard battery for example you know like the hard drive and the more that social battery goes down, the more this other big battery goes down. Yep. Uh-huh. And I think if we're not maybe understanding what the limits are for the social battery and let yeah. that run right down to red, that's when the big motherboard battery oh, like, drops yeah. down. And that's where mm-hmm. maybe burnout would come from. Absolutely, I agree. Um, yeah. So kind of knowing where, what the limits are, but also what can the individual do do to charge mm-hmm. that social battery back mm-hmm. up again when they get yeah. and that's just like what you were saying so knowing knowing your limits and when it's time to leave a situation yeah and having yeah. the confidence to do so and that's difficult but also what brings you joy what brings you uh, that internal joy and mm-hmm. and incorporating things like that into your day if need be or, or into your week oh yeah would you would you say that yes. that would be kind of that's kind of representative of a good way of, of describing sort of social balance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you're saying, the way to help that, you're talking about artistic joy there, I take it. Yeah, yes. yeah. So that, I think that's really good. Another good tip, isn't it? To, uh, I guess, artistic joy, the way I sort of describe it, it's like that euphoric sort of energy state we can tap into that you might only see in like maybe children with the childlike sense of joy, but we actually are still able to tap into that as adults. And that can be with things like our main interests or even like positive sensory things like the sensory bliss. So maybe it's like being in nature and or being in the rain. Uh, I'm quite sensitive to heat, so I kind of like when it's like, you know, hailing of rain after a heat wave and that helps me to cool down and you can get different like visual stems like vocal stems uh, which are quite nice and appealing to have so I think just cherishing that artistic joy that we possess and can connect to is a really great way for us to also recover from you know our social battery or just recover from life in general yeah yeah more, more more having that integrated in your day is I, uh, I must, I would say. 
Absolutely. The first time I ever heard the term autistic joy was actually, and I've mentioned in Beagle already, but it was oh, yeah. done a talk for, for um, Autism Take Five. And and I was like, wow, of, of course, like that. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. It's complete sense. Yeah, sometimes you just need somebody to, you know, come up with a term and, and then it just clicks. You're like, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah, yeah. No, and that, that's, that's not part of how it's... I would, again, the, the, my like receiving the, you know, diagnosis from a you know, non-autistic clinicians, it's not fully satisfying because they just tell you, you know, your triad of impairments thing. They don't tell you about autistic. Well, they don't know actually. They don't know about autistic joy. Uh, they don't know about burnout either, of course. But there's so many positive things that come from you know being autistic. You know, very little is still explored with like autistic empathy and autistic compassion, like, cause those can be very different for how we express those, but again, are just as valid as, you know, other forms of people expressing their empathy. So Absolutely. it's yeah. just different, isn't it? It's just a different, yeah, way of being. Yeah. Can I ask as well, Scott, you're just talking about being in nature and you've reminded me about your retreat. I don't know yeah. if your retreat was in nature, but when you were saying being out in nature, it made me think about, your your retreat so you were mm. recently on an autistic retreat and it's the first time I've ever heard of anything like <laughs> that can you can you tell us about it of course so yeah the beginning of this month I signed up for this autistic-led retreat down in Derbyshire in England so I went with a, another autistic friend it's called Otscape yours can't listeners can't see but that's a mug that I bought from Otscape <laughs> that they were oh, selling so Oxgate basically is yeah, fully run by autistic people, autistic volunteers. It's been around in the UK since 2005. So that would have been the 17th one, the, my first one this year that I went to. Uh, so the 17th, like, I guess, anniversary of that event. Uh, there was nearly 300 autistic people there. Wow. So it was at this the Hayes Conference Centre. So... Uh, lots of like different rooms and like sorry buildings for uh, you know you know rooms for people to stay in. So it ran Monday night through Friday morning for those of us that stayed the extra day on Friday. Now how to how to describe it because <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, the basic the introduction bit with the orientation. So we go into this big conference hall and they're letting those of us that are new. Uh, you know how the place runs and immediately they were showing us how when we go to the talks or watch these speakers deliver their presentations at Autscape we don't clap we actually flap our hands like this that I'm doing on screen and that's quite a friendly way for those that you know everyone clapping in a room that's quite an intense sensory experience for some of us so uh, you get little things like that they had these I don't have them on me at the moment, but they had these little communication badges and colours. So one was a white badge. So white was basically referring to someone that's like neutral communication. They can initiate and regulate their own interactions. There was a badge for green, which is someone who wants to interact with people and speak, but they struggle to initiate. So it's asking people to come over and talk to them. There was one... There's a, there was one more, a yellow 
I forgot what yellow was, but there was a red one. Red is for someone who doesn't want to interact at all, so just give them space. Mm-hmm. And you can change between those over the course of the 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 well the escape because it's an escape from the world <laughs> I would call it. Um, and I was quite used. I did start off maybe with the white neutral one, but at times I did wear the green one because initiating has always been quite a challenge for me and. When in a group like that, you know, it was, you know, me trying to seek more of that connection to the autistic community and autistic culture. So having that green badge is a really nice way of like letting people know that you're approachable and you're happy to like speak with them. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's just got that inclusive atmosphere in that space. And there is a bit of nature too, because uh, the way we are, it was just in the middle of a sort of house in a state like all oh, this sort of grassy area with loads of trees so that was that was a good bit of autistic joy too actually like most people on on the days were just sort of lying in the grass sitting in the sort of like grassy garden area and it was just nice even observing other autistic people just in their element because you had those that they had their ear defenders, they had their sensory aids, some were walking in bare feet, some were like walking, pacing, stimming up and down, and mostly like adults as well, older than me. So everyone was just in this really safe space where there was no judgment. And in the rare occasion that say someone did have a meltdown or was distressed, you know, if that's in a room of 200 people, no one bats an eye, like there's no shame or judgment on that person. And there's just it's that feeling of like it's like you're coming home. It feels like when you're in a space like that. Like if you're, you know, I feel like just so many of us are separated from other autistic people. Even looking at uh, Scotland right now, we don't have a lot of autistic-led groups. Usually, Lanarkshire, Glasgow, the areas like the non-autistic charities that are running all the main social support groups or it's also just maybe for non-autistic parents but really you know i mean obviously (laughs) it shows you that i had to drive like five hours just to find my very first autistic space (laughs) in the country but every second of that journey was worth it and my friend similarly was in also similar uh, view of it like they were quite upset that they were leaving Otscape to go back to working with non-autistic people (laughs) and so there is there was that you know great you know as you say the camaraderie or that sort of community connectedness and I was just quite amazed how naturally like for myself and those of us there how we just got in sync immediately it's that double empathy idea of course but just being there like I could have been just sitting on my own and just quite happily might have my green badge on to say I'm open to talking, but this is a really peaceful place. I just kind of like being here at this in this this place. And then you get someone who might just come over and start talking to you and you, and you spend like an hour, two hours just sharing life experiences. It's great. And you don't, at least my life, you don't get a lot of that back here, back home. So just it was amazing just to make these new connections with people and quite meaningful ones even when you were only there for a couple of days and obviously that was just a sample of a maybe a dozen people over you know out of 300 other ones but it just made me feel like if I could live in a place like Otscape you know it almost create like a village or something and then just get to 
meet new autistic people like every day and and just gradually you know in our own time like you know initiate those conversations or get to know people because obviously there's a lot of pressure at your first time when you want to speak to people but you're maybe not sure how to connect with them or even you're always looking at their badges are they on a red badge or something <laughs> are they want to speak so but no it was amazing and just met people from scotland who came uh england uh germany uh romania as well it was america wow. canada like again international like loads of people you know really just wanted to be there and you could tell uh just you know <laughs> and like was i was saying um my sort of journey at school in that where people would often say you know what's wrong with you why are you doing this that kind of thing there was people at you know Otscape who out loud would say to us um uh, the sort of info dumping thing we do with our communication they were just saying oh i can talk to you guys about all these little facts without being rejected and then they just continue and start info dumping so i uh, it's just so Norm, everything's just normalized really we aren't just seen as complete human beings and there was absolutely no disorder present in that space <laughs> there's like zero conflict zero obviously you know like sensory issues those may always still come up again but like what? there is no, there is no disorder there that was a you know there was a few children families there as well but again people of all ages and those sort of social connections, you know, be made naturally. You know, we do, we, we know that from the, the good research now that we actually do have good social skills, social differences. And uh, I mean, that place was just undeniable proof that we are social creatures, that we have our own social needs. It's just a matter of how we do that is different. But when you put us together, we're going to flourish with that stuff. Absolutely. I often say, Neurotypical people have got great neurotypical social skills. They have horrific autistic social oh, skills. Absolutely. Yeah. But autistic people have obviously got great autistic social skills. Mm -hmm. They also have pretty okay neurotypical uh, social skills yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, kind of got yeah. one up. I know there's so much scripting we have to do with the neurotypical communication so there's a lot we pick up on. What I mean by that I suppose as well is autistic people have been brought into this neurotypical world where they've been told that this is how to communicate, this is what's acceptable so they have to learn how to communicate in that way because that's the way society's told them. All the while they've still got their autistic social skills as well so it's like almost having this two skill sets yes and, you yeah, know yeah. essentially so it's funny when when they're being told you know you've got poor social skills and it's like being in that like retreat that was uh personally what i was needing at that point in my life because like all the things about the uh if it's the trauma responses the internalized ableism again i don't think that stuff will ever go away it's not really over about overcoming that I think it's just reaching a point of acceptance and I think with me that being in that space was a real confirmation for me uh, internally that no actually I can be social I do actually want to connect form relationships with people it's just again a matter of how that might be look or be different from me compared to the 
sort of standards that are placed on us in society right now. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that. It sounds amazing, actually. And nice. from a communication point of view, for me, it, <laughs> this would be a, a speech language therapist. Communication is like obviously one of my, my main interests, and ha, the badges just sound oh, so a simple idea, but. Mm-hmm. How much sense does that make? Oh, know? yeah. And the other, the big sort of sensory experience we had, they did this little activity, Sparklies in the Dark, where we went into a sport hall, giving a little glowing stick for everyone. And you basically walk around in this dark room at night, and you're just, that's all it is, you're just walking around the hall in circles, pacing up and down. And what was beautiful was you started to see groups of autistic people form. They might have not known each other going into that hall, but just through walking about, you see them uh, form our little like cliques and we're just in these little groups together interacting. So again, that sounds like a very basic, simple thing. It was just a glow stick, a dark room, <laughs> but it was, it was so like euphoric and like liberating. Uh, you yeah. just felt so free in a space like that. Again, that goes back to what you were seen a wee minute ago about how it, it's just proof that autistic people are also social creatures you know they're mm-hmm. congregating together and you know I was thinking when you were saying you know I'd love to have like a wee village you know like that yes. like oh, escape how, how lovely would that be but you know see if society got to a point where neurodivergence was just accepted as is the world could be that village oh know? that's true the world could be that village absolutely how great would that be you know everybody just you know being able to walk around as as they are as they are comfortable yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely that would be, that yeah, would be ideal absolutely. i very ideal not, not an ideal world is it <laughs> well, exactly and it's certain that's not going to happen next week unfortunately oh, so. yeah i mean that was really my main experience of an immersive connection to the artistic uh, culture because again it is a culture that's when I think that double empathy stuff is great because that's really just talking about a culture clash between two different groups and just through that connection to this culture and that community obviously I'm in I did make maybe a few contacts people I can keep in touch with which is obviously long distance but I do hope uh, somehow here I can maybe start to reach out, connect more to the autistic people in the areas we live in at the moment and maybe start up more of a, if it's groups, if it's starting more autistic-led networks where, you know, we have those, if it's not quite as expansive as Otscape, still some kind of network of connection. Because uh, I, I really, I don't feel like, again, there's a lot for us, especially if you're, you know, you're in, you know, you're an adult, you're in your twenties beyond, you're not really given a lot of groups or services here. So I think it's so so important that, you know, we get more autistic, you know, people creating spaces and just uh, coming together, do you know, and just creating our own movements. <laughs> it's like I really like the the I've not been to one, but they do the autistic Pride Day uh every year in June. And uh, we've never had anything like that in Lanarkshire or Glasgow. So again, that's something, if we get enough autistic people to come together, we could really start to create something like that and just, you know, having that openly 
openness of being autistic and just reducing all this stigma that's around us. Uh, so that's my, uh, I guess it gave me a bit of hope as well for humanity that just being in that retreat, you know, so I'm really in a space now where I, fe I felt quite re-energized from that place and quite a life-changing experience too. So I'm hoping that I can take the lessons and experience of that place and take it forward in, you know, real life back here now. Yeah. 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 And also it did, um, it did also inspire me to uh, start a blog. So I've actually just set up a blog for myself recently. Um, it's, mm -hmm. I just called it um, Autistically Scott. <laughs> so the, oh, I've got what's that? a free uh, a domain name for that. So my first post a few weeks ago was on my experience at Autscape. So there's a bit maybe more detail about what that was like and other things we did in that space. So for about a year or so, I was curious about making a blog because I really like the other autistic bloggers like yourself, advocates doing all the work, just sharing bits about their life. And I've gotten to a point where I feel I could probably do a bit of that too. And that could also hopefully connect me more to the autistic community in large in general. So yeah, that really uh, experience was the sort of boost I needed to like go, do you know, I'm just going to publish this now because I just, I just get that. Yeah, just start to be more vulnerable. I think that's a key thing for us, just to be willing to, you know, not be ashamed of our traits, of our experiences, and just be willing to be open to things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Kick that imposter syndrome. And that's it's the weird thing. You will still get that imposter stuff well after diagnosis, well after fully knowing you're autistic. It is just a... Is uh, quite a, a tough battle at times, but I think the more you know, you just connect to your own identity and culture. You know, you will be able to accept the ups and downs with that sort of stuff. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on and telling us about mm -hmm. your experience. This has been—I always learn so much doing these podcasts. But I just, yeah, I learned so much just listening to you oh, and your experience. <laughs> Honestly, thank you, thank you so much.